0: And my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal. You know that. Fire!
1: Just like last time. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly
0: important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One of state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Joseph a Philly girl when I'm a screen In our first episode of this new season, we had a great discussion with State Representative Jared Solomon. We talked about what's on the minds of his constituents in the lead up to the May primary for Philadelphia's open mayoral seat. Now, speaking of the mayor's race, on Thursday, March second, in the evening, I'll be moderating a forum with all the candidates on stage. This is along with Jenny DeHuff, the editor in chief of City and State. Check out our social media to learn more. Check out their social media to learn even more. If you're in Philadelphia or in the region. Definitely reserve a ticket. Feel free also to send any suggestions on questions. Now, we received a lot of great feedback on that first episode, so today we're going to have a similar discussion. I'm looking forward to sitting down with State Representative Donna Bullock. She represents very diverse neighborhoods. In addition to her home neighborhood of Strawberry Mansion, she also represents the iconic Philadelphia Art Museum, the ever-popular Eastern State Penitentiary, Historic Girard College, and neighborhoods north and west, Brewery Town up to Stenton. Now, to get specific, for all you Philadelphia politicos who tune in, we're talking about the 8th Ward, the 15th Ward, the 16th Ward, the 28th Ward, the 29th and 32nd Ward. She has parts of all of those. She and her constituents have a lot on their minds in the lead up to May's primary. So I'm looking forward to hearing if it's similar to what we learned from State Representative Jared Salman. Now, Donna Bullock is also the chair of Pennsylvania's Legislative Black Caucus, and I'm really looking forward to hearing her personal reflections this Black History Month. State Representative Donna Bullock, welcome to my kitchen table.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Ari.
0: Well, thank you for your service, and I wanted to reflect on Black History Month and what it means to you, and 50 years of the Legislative Black Caucus, and your vision for uh, as chair. But where, where to begin? Uh, we're all licking our wounds from uh, from the Eagles, uh, but anyhow, we're 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 only looking forward. We can't look backward. So,
1: all right. I was looking forward to having uh, Eagles parade in my district, but, you know, hopefully we'll still have one to recognize them as our conference champions as well.
0: I like the sound of that. We have listeners all over the Commonwealth uh, and certainly beyond. Remind folks where where your legislative district lines are.
1: So I represent the 195th Legislative District, which includes parts of North Philadelphia and Art Museum area. So you're very familiar with the Art Museum and the Parkway and other parts of the the Art Museum area, like the main library and that beautiful fountain in Logan Square, but also uh, Fairmount communities, brewery town, strawberry mansion and other parts of North Central near Temple University.
0: I need to say, because I'm an honest and transparent guy, my father actually is a constituent of yours. Uh, Now now that I'm uh, uh, hearing um, the exact legislative lines, he's there in the 2401, that large building. Oh,
1: absolutely. I know the Philadelphian well. We go there to eat at Pete's all the time. It's a great little diner at the bottom of the 2401 Pennsylvania. So, great.
0: And give give folks a sense of, uh, of, of your background uh, as well. Um, how long you've been in the legislature. Once again, we have a lot of Harrisburg listeners, but we also have quite a few listeners in Washington and beyond. So...
1: Sure. So I've been in the state legislature for seven and a half years now, going on eight. Before that, I worked as a staffer for city council president, Derek Clark, here in Philadelphia. And prior to entering government in that former role, I was an attorney for community legal services in a small private law firm, focusing mostly on representing nonprofits and organizations. And that was just something really important to me. I went to law school thinking I was going to change the world. And had really great grades in classes like taxes and corporate law. Didn't know how to do that, but found out that I could represent nonprofit corporations doing that great work, and it was really great.
0: Well, across your districts, I was excited to sit down for so many reasons. I mean, there's there's a lot of diversity when you talk about those neighborhoods. It's zip codes that are all over uh, median household income and other metrics. So. Maybe you could speak to uh, the nonprofit landscape, and then this will segue also into what we're hearing in advance of the, the mayoral primary. And then I want to close with a talk about Black History Month and your work with the, uh, with the Legislative Caucus.
1: Right. Yeah, I believe my district is a microcosm of the city of Philadelphia from, you know, those social racial demographics and economic demographics that you mentioned. Parts of my district include some of the poorest zip codes um, in the city, as well as some of the wealthiest zip codes in the city. And so but what I learned is that folks are looking for some of the same responses and answers from their elected officials and from the community organizations that serve them, whether it's, you know, finding housing that is affordable and comfortable no matter Uh, what your income level may be. People wanna be able to go home and feel safe in their homes and in their communities, safe communities, again, safe schools um, and schools that are educating our children. And safe, when I say safe for our schools, it's both from a public safety perspective, but also from an environmental health perspective. These are all issues that I believe, regardless of those different socioeconomic backgrounds and demographics, people still share. They want to be able to go home and feel safe. They want to be able to raise their children um, and send them to a quality uh, school. They want to be able to work a job that they love that puts food on the table for them. And they want to be able to age gracefully and with dignity. And so having organizations and programs that support seniors and children and families and small businesses in my community is really important. And I think that's what's important to uh, the residents of Philadelphia and perhaps the entire Commonwealth.
0: Okay, great. Great points to unpackage there. Um, why don't we just take those one by one? And you just have such an amazing perspective because you're familiar with City Hall and then you're also familiar with all the nooks and crannies of the state capitol. So what I first heard was, was housing. And when I think about that district and those neighborhoods in Philadelphia, there's all sorts of housing stock. We alluded to a very, very large condo building, but then there's also row homes. There's row homes that have been... Cut up into smaller apartments. Maybe maybe we can speak about housing, and then I think also Philadelphia, like many cities across the country, is uh, experiencing a homeless uh, crisis. So
1: there are so many different ways we can address housing. One, we need to make sure folks have those who can work and want to work have an income that can support their the household, and then when we're looking at individuals who may not be able to do that, how do we provide the diversity of housing inventory for diverse families and households? So for example, in my district, we have an intergenerational affordable housing project for grandparents who are raising their grandchildren so that those grandparents can get the kind of services that you would expect in a senior housing development, but also have a childcare facility nearby and other resources that they would need for their children, their grandchildren that they are now raising. That's thinking outside of the box for those families that may not look like your traditional family, but also needs assistance in their housing. But we also need to look at smaller housing units, single occupancy units for homeless individuals or young people experiencing homelessness. So we work very closely with an organization called Monkey and the Elephant here in Philadelphia. It runs a cafe, a coffee shop that hires young people experiencing homelessness and then works with them on gaining the life skills, including you know how to find your first apartment if you've been living on the street since you were 17 or 18 years old and deal with opening a bank account, opening, starting school, going to community college. But those young people need a certain type of housing. Maybe they need a supportive housing setting. Maybe they're ready for independent living. But trying to find housing for those young people that's affordable and supportive for where they are in their lives. We need to work together with the legislature, with our local elected officials and those nonprofit organizations throughout the city like Project Home, which is also in my district, like Monkey and Elephant that's in my district and others that provide housing services to provide those unique needs to those communities. We can do other things. There are tons of stuff we can look at policy-wise. Here in the city of Philadelphia, we have an issue called tangled title that I'm finding happens in other communities as well where we're not properly passing on title to homes from generation to generation. We're not probating the estate. And so those homes have title that's not clear. And it becomes challenging for generations of homeowners or people that live in that home to now access the programs that the state and the city does put in place, like programs to help fix your roof. If, if you're elderly and your roof is, is collapsing programs to uh, help you with real estate taxes, like the uh, property tax rent rebate program, or or senior tax freeze here in Philadelphia or other programs that may, that we just passed the whole home repair program here in the Commonwealth, that that program will be hard for individual individuals who don't have clear title. It will be hard for them to access that. So I'm looking at ways to, to address our property law here in the Commonwealth to ease that transfer of title for those families. So they can then access programs intended to keep them in their home.
0: That's excellent. Thank you for that perspective. The second Point that I heard you say in the previous uh, discussion was safety, and that's certainly top of mind of the mayoral candidates and I think all Philadelphia residents. Uh, So maybe and it goes hand in hand with with all of these go hand in hand. So maybe you could speak also to what you're referring to there and what you're hearing from your constituents.
1: Right. You know, I live in Strawberry Mansion as a community that, you know, has been dealing with public safety issues for some time now. And now we're seeing public safety concerns throughout the Commonwealth, and particularly here in the city of Philadelphia. For me, I, I look to at least one issue that I think had spurred or kind of increased some of the violence that we see during a pandemic. A lot of those nonprofit organizations that we talked about um, were not available or able to provide the kind of services and resources that many families depended on, whether it was counseling, whether it was other, some other kind of relief to deal with the pressures that some of those families may have been dealing with, job training and access grief counseling, and support for families that I think was critical to their stability. And as those resources, even youth programs were not available, as those resources were not available during a pandemic, I think families found themselves in crisis and young people found themselves in crisis. And where they were able to find those relief that relief elsewhere, they haven't and turned unfortunately to to violence. And I think that's part of this certain situation that we haven't factored in. Yes, there are issues around policing, you know, maybe a deficiency when it comes to the number of police that we currently have, have, and needing to recruit more police and train them, needing to address access to lost and stolen guns in our community, ghost guns, Um, making sure those firearms don't get into the hands of folks who should not have them. Those are all other policy issues. But one of the things that I think we fail to talk about enough is that a lot of those resources that were there for for our families and communities were just, you know, really hurt financially and otherwise during the pandemic and haven't been able to get back into full swing and to serving those communities that were in crisis and in need and continue to be so. I hope that we continue to find ways to invest in those communities, invest in the organizations that do violence prevention and other family support programs, puts young people to work, um, gives them give them opportunity to explore their passions, whether it's art or tech or coding, so that they can find more useful, meaningful ways to be productive in society and hopefully not turn to violence.
0: Well, that, that definitely segues into the other point you raised uh, originally about jobs. We look at uh, the city of Philadelphia and the region as a whole, and uh, on the one hand, there's, there's a lot of dynamism. On the other hand, there's communities and there's neighborhoods such as some of those that you represent that it just seems like those jobs are just so aspirational and out of reach. So when you're talking about the 17-year-old you mentioned uh, who might be homeless or the folks that you just mentioned, uh, the safety discussion. How do, we, how do we get more job opportunities into uh, the communities and once again, a lens through Harrisburg and a lens through City Hall?
1: Right. So there's a couple of things there, right? Education, definitely need to train and educate young people to pre- prepare for the jobs as they come. And some of that is happening. Do you think we need to retool some of the community education programs as well as our co- college level programs to make sure that they're specific to the the future of work, but also make sure that our K-12 programs are preparing young people for work right out of high school. The vocational and tech programs, that's a space that we need, we are failing our young people and we need to pick up. On the other side of this, we need to invest in young people, in pro, uh, I believe in small businesses particularly. What I saw during the pandemic is a lot of young people looking at work and saying, well, what are the benefits of going to a job that may not have actual benefits, um, that may not provide the kind of life or family style that I want, and saying, well, I'm not going to go to the the usual nine to five. I'm going to enter the gig economy. But as we look at that gig economy, we can say, well, those are entrepreneurs. Those are folks who are looking for a different way to work. And how do we support them as small businesses? Those are different ways that we can support folks that are coming in looking at the job market, we have to rethink what the job market looks like. It's not, I don't think that it's what our universities are teaching for right now. And if we don't reorganize and rethink college education, uh, there may not be much value for that for folks if we don't figure it out. What do we see, for example, is our own governor just passed an executive order? Um, saying that a college education isn't required for state jobs and, you know, looking at each job and determining what the skill sets are required for those different positions. That's where we're going to see employers go. And We need to just make sure that folks are getting the training and the skill sets to do that. Uh, And there are ways to do that if we support the programs that exist and retool the community colleges and uh, career schools to do it as well.
0: I definitely want to go back and explore some elements of that, but the last point that you raised uh, initially was you referenced the environment, and maybe you could speak a little uh, more detail to that.
1: Sure, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Yeah, I should say
0: also, you have amazing parks in that uh, yes. sort of district that you represent.
1: Yeah, well, Philadelphia. I've has very sweaty largest-
0: uh, training for marathons and such on uh, <laughs> the river there. So
1: we have the largest city park system, which is Fairmount Park, right here in the city of Philadelphia. But the Commonwealth has all of this natural beauty. Well, but here's the thing: we also have some of the most beautiful, historic, but oldest infrastructure in the country, right? I mean, Philadelphia is the birthplace of America. And that being said, when you look at our school buildings, and you look at our homes, and you look at our churches, those structures may be more than a hundred years old. And what we know happens is that there are over decades there has been materials used in those buildings whether it's asbestos or lead paint that may remain in those beautiful historic buildings that are exposed and then our children are exposed to it look my son who is now a very annoying 12 year old but brilliant and bright was exposed to lead at an early age too when you know he was going to a daycare and he was going to getting going to my mom's house after daycare. And we realized between those two settings that he was being exposed to lead in her old home and in his daycare that was in an old school, and an old church. So we need to look at our school buildings and look at other infrastructure and make sure that we are upgrading that infrastructure and protecting families that are in, 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 in their homes and children in their schools. Around the time that I found out about my son's exposure, there was a story in the here in Philadelphia about a kindergartner, I believe, that had extremely high levels of lead because he was eating the paint chips that were falling from the ceiling onto his desk. And folks will say, well, why would he do that? And and you have to understand that paint chips and lead actually taste sweet. So once you get a taste of it, a child will keep going back to that. So especially if he's not young, old enough to understand. And that can impact some developmental stages for those those young scholars and their attention span and other you know learning capabilities. So we want to make sure they're not exposed to that and that the teaching staff is not exposed to that. We, we lost a teacher here a few years ago who was exposed to asbestos. So we want to make sure we're addressing those health concerns, public safety concerns and, and public health concerns at the same time as we're looking at our school buildings.
0: Thanks for sharing that, that personal story. I'm just thinking we our, our daughter's going to be three in April, and uh, if it's colorful and it fits in the mouth, it's probably going to wind up uh, in, in her mouth. Um So this reminds me that it was sometime in the month of January, I'm forgetting when it all forced together. I don't know how we're already in February, that the president and the vice president were in Philadelphia. They were celebrating the infrastructure bill. And yeah, I mentioned this just in the context of what you just mentioned, but also the the city of Philadelphia and the Commonwealth, I don't want to say it's a bloated budget by any means, but there's a lot of federal money that, that's been flowing. Uh, and this is something that the new governor and the, the next mayor should be thinking about. So be curious how wearing your legislator hat, but then also your proud Philadelphian hat, how, how are you looking? Uh, we can get kind of wonky uh, about municipal financing and
1: right. Commonwealth budgeting. Well, let's talk about it from pandemic dollars to infrastructure dollars. There, This is perhaps... One of the largest infusions of, of federal funds into our city and our state. And with this kind of investment, we need to take that opportunity to address the disparities that we've been talking about, particularly during the pandemic. You know, the last time we've made this kind of investment in our infrastructure, in, in our schools, in our housing stock, in the social services that we provide, in the uh, subsidiary type of programs, subsidy programs we provided for housing or anything else, jobs and to support small businesses, grants, all the infusion of dollars. Let's do it right this time. We can yeah, talk
0: about- Yeah, I don't think you or I were alive. Uh, we were alive. Two, when, when this was happening, wait, it's really remarkable and transformational we, what we're on the cusp of
1: transformational Ari, is the key those dollars when it was done you know after the world wars and all of that was transformational. transformation we created our suburbs it created the middle class here in in the united states and it can do the same here this time around and making sure everybody is included in this shared prosperity i will say that we create opportunities for all Pennsylvanians, but particularly those who have been left out and left behind to be able to get that step up and move into the middle class. If we we're gonna have state contracts for building highways and and you know building sidewalks or putting up streetlights or whatever it may be that we give equal opportunity and ample access to communities that had not been able to be a part of those processes in the past so that those small businesses can grow, so that they can support other families. And those families can move from, from low income to middle income so that they can put their children to college if that's what they choose. And then we create another generation of Pennsylvanians that are doing well and that there, that we have eliminated, I hope, the disparities that many of us had seen during a pandemic when the access to healthcare and access to education, access to technology became so apparent and visible when folks couldn't move forward with their lives when those things were cut off.
0: Let me ask you, we don't have to mention candidates by name, but candidates that they're hopefully out and about in the wards and the neighborhoods that you represent, are they doing town halls or their forums about these issues that your, your residents, your neighbors can raise their voices.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there are tons of forums and panel discussions happening in the city of Philadelphia right now, different interest groups, different faith groups, and uh, many of the candidates are participating in those forums. And I encourage residents to listen in, whether they're virtual or in person, to hear from the, these candidates directly. But I also encourage the candidates to step out beyond the planned and organized forums. We need to see you in our neighborhoods, walking our streets in our places of business, whether it's the local deli or the local hair salon, but also, you know, sitting on the stoop of Miss Mary or Mr. John down the block and talking to neighbors at a very personal level um, so that we get to know who you are. You know, that is so important. And I think they get, it's really hard and it's hard to find those spaces. They want a very packed um, mayoral campaign stretch. But if you find a space, spaces to really connect with people personally, that can go a long way. And I think that's when you really learn about the issues that matter to Philadelphians and not so much the policy walks that show up at every candidate's forum.
0: Well, for better or worse, as we're recording this, the temperature forecast is supposed to be in the mid 60s uh, for it's this good time week. to walk so the neighborhood. There's, really no, there's no excuse. Candidates should be out and about. And I know petition season's upon us. I want to pivot as we wind down. You've been super generous with your time. February is Black History Month. Many of us believe that each and every month we should celebrate and reflect on the contribution of Black Americans, but you also chair the Legislative Black Caucus. This is the 50th year of the caucus, so maybe you can speak uh, personally what that means to you, and then also as you look at, I think, the most diversity in the State House uh, in history.
1: Yes, I am so honored to be able to represent the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus and to serve them again as second term as the chair of this group of legislators. Both of those terms, we continue to, the last term we grew, and this term, of course, and uh, it's the most diverse it has been in its 200 plus years history. And so to have, you know, our legislative body now be as diverse as it is, Black, Latino, Asian American, Pacific Islander uh, representative as far as LGBTQ communities, people from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh to Erie to Reading. And, you know, we have more people of color, not just from the cities, but from places in between those two cities of Philly and Pittsburgh. It's just really exciting to bring that diverse opinion to the Commonwealth and to the state legislature at a time that I think it is critical, not during this moment of Black History Month, but particularly critical as the state becomes more diverse. And as we address the issues coming out of a pandemic and wanting to address equity and dis- and inclusion and making sure we close the gaps on disparities, that diverse opinion, diverse experiences, diverse regional experience um, that we are bringing to the Commonwealth is so critical to that conversation. To let folks know and understand that Black and brown folks don't just live in the city. We live on in suburbs and we live in rural communities as well. And that we have different experiences in those communities as well. But also to do it when we are talking about issues that are important, like environmental justice and police reform and education reform. And those issues and Pennsylvanians benefit from the, the diversity of the legislative body. When you have more voices to the table, I think we come back and we come out of it and we get to the floor and we vote on legislation that is now more inclusive and better for Pennsylvania uh, because it's been vetted and because it's been discussed and debated by folks with different opinions. We're doing that now, and I look forward to continuing to do it. We have 37 members of color in the state legislative body right now between the House and the Senate. We are celebrating 50 years. We're recognizing Black resistance this month of Black History Month. And for Pennsylvania, we have been at the forefront of Black resistance and understanding that when Black folk resist the status quo, we push America to be a better place. Here in Pennsylvania, we've done that when we elected Crystal Bird Fawcett to the state legislature in 1938 first Black woman elected to Pennsylvania, but also to any state legislature in our country. We did it again when we elected Kaylee Roy Irvis to be the first Black Speaker of the Pennsylvania House, who was the first Black Speaker for Pennsylvania, but the first Black person in any state since Reconstruction period to serve as Speaker of the House. And we're doing it again this year when we have Joanna McClinton serving as the leader of the Democratic Party caucus in the House. We have uh, Austin Davis as Lieutenant Governor. Summer Lee is the first Black woman to serve in Congress. And all of those folks came out of the Black Caucus. So I'm extremely proud of their work, but I also know where their passion is, their heart is, and that they are skilled and talented and committed to serving the people of Pennsylvania, but particularly doing that in the context of being a black Pennsylvanian and what it means for the communities that they represent, but also for the diversity of this Commonwealth. And so it's really exciting to do that all within this 50th year commemoration, but all of it happening at the same time. And I am hopeful that we will bring Pennsylvania uh, into a better place over the next few months.
0: Here, here. Well, uh, I'm going to remind listeners, we had a great discussion with uh, Joanna McClinton several months ago before Election Day, um, and definitely give a, uh, her her sage advice then, and certainly your sage advice now is uh, uh, pretty timeless and evergreen. I'm reminded also in Philadelphia, when we were talking about debate, our founding fathers used the unum as the national mono out of many one. And I mm-hmm. think adversity is our strength, and that's certainly uh, true in the city of Philadelphia. Um, so thank you so much for your time and what you're doing in the trenches.
1: Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to speak and have a space and a venue for our voices to be heard.
0: You bet. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too. At PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, papoliticalpodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week.